Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Grainne Nier, who along with Michelle Hennessy will be keeping Sinead O'Carroll's microphone warm for a while. And this week, does global vaccine inequality put us at risk of new COVID variants? I'm sure many of you felt your heart sink when you first heard the news about Omicron. This new COVID variant has sparked worldwide concern with countries rushing to impose travel restrictions while scientists attempt to learn more about how much of a threat this new strain poses. But it has also raised questions about whether leaving poorer countries without access to vaccines puts us all at risk of a new and potentially harmful variant emerging. Criticism has been levelled at richer countries for opposing measures that could help developing countries solve this problem, such as allowing them to produce their own vaccines. Essentially, could companies like Pfizer or Moderna be compelled to lift their copyright on COVID jabs? To help us talk through all of this and to explain to us what a TRIPS waiver is, which you might have seen mentioned as one possible solution, we're joined by virologist and assistant professor at Trinity College Dublin, Kim Roberts, and Dimitri Einikel from Doctors Without Borders. Kim, I'll start with you in the variant. This might sound like a strange question for the Explainer podcast, but it is important. Tell us what we don't know about this new variant, Omicron. We don't know a lot, unfortunately. There's very little we do think we understand about this new uh, variant, Omicron. So we don't know what all the mutations together mean. So we, we can identify areas within the spike protein that have particular functions that we understand. But we have to remember that the spike protein, it's a, you know, it's a three-dimensional structure and a change on one side can affect the function of um, of the protein on the other side. And so we, we don't know whether or not the mutations are having an effect on how infectious this virus is or how transmissible it is. We think that the mutations probably are, but we don't know for sure. And similarly, whilst we have some indication that there are um, mutations that will have an impact on how our immune response binds to the spike protein, Again, we don't know what the impact of those mutations altogether will actually have, um, either for um, naturally acquired immunity or vaccine acquired immunity. So it's very, very frustrating that that we don't know these things and there's lots of speculation, um, but it is going to take some time before we can be confident in in our assessment of this new variant. So that's what we, we don't know. What answers do we have about it? We know that within South Africa, the the number of infections has increased dramatically and there are various potential reasons for that, not just because of the new strain um, Omicron, but it is likely that Omicron is is, um, contributing to that. But of course, that increase in incidence of of SARS coronavirus 2 in South Africa comes at a point where Previously, there was very little virus around, um, and so we've seen this big increase um, more recently. What that means in terms of transmission, particularly transmission in a country like Ireland, where we already have a lot of community transmission of the Delta variant, we don't know. So we don't know yet whether or not the Delta variant will remain dominant or the Omicron variant will become dominant in a country where there's lots of virus. So we can see what's happening in South Africa, but it's difficult to then translate that to other countries. 
Um, one of the things that, that we do think we're getting a, a good handle on now is that this virus is probably more, well, is more widely distributed around the world than we previously thought. So we're already getting reports of um, Omicron being isolated from patients from multiple different countries from all over the world. So I think we have to acknowledge that this is widely dispersed, but we don't know what that means for transmission in different countries yet. How long will it be before we have a good idea of how much of a threat this variant is? We're getting more information every day, but we do need to be critical of that information. And I think it's going to take weeks, possibly even a month or two, before we have a good picture of what this new variant means. So if we think back to the Alpha variant, that was first identified in, in September 2020, but it wasn't until a, until December 2020 that the impact of those mutations and that new variant was understood. So is it too early to say for reports to be saying that this is mild? Is it too early to say that? I think so. And I think there's been quite a lot of criticism um, of those statements. With Delta, the vast majority of, of infections are, are mild to moderate, but they're not necessarily the, the infections that we worry about because they're not the, the infections that um, that, that make people very sick and lead to, to hospitals, uh, to people going into hospital um, and pressure on the hospitals. So it's far too early to tell. How does vaccine nationalism or vaccine inequity contribute to the threat of new variants emerging? So viruses change and mutate whenever we give them the space to replicate. So if we allow this virus to replicate to high levels within the community, in whatever country around the world, we're giving it huge opportunities to pick up mutations and to change and to better adapt to us, um, and also to pick up changes that allow it to evade um, immune responses within those communities. So for me, vaccine inequality is, is a huge issue, and that if we want to tackle this pandemic as quickly as possible, as a world, we need to work together to distribute vaccines, to make sure that you know, whatever country somebody is living in, they have equal access to all the different transmission interventions to reduce the spread of this virus. Um, and of course, it's really important to remember that within every country, there are some people who are much more vulnerable to, to this virus. We need to protect those people um, for the long game. So even in a highly vaccinated population like Ireland's, it is possible a variant could emerge, but it's less likely. Absolutely. So for people who are vaccinated and who are fully vaccinated, we do see some breakthrough infections where they get infected, but it's um, it's more moderate disease and the window where they are infectious and able to pass on the virus is much shorter. So in a highly vaccinated population, you're going to get less transmission and you're, so you're going to get uh, less accumulation of these mutations and changes. The only caveat to that is that in all countries, we have a proportion of the population who are immunocompromised, who don't generate good immune responses to the infectious diseases that they see. And for, some, for those people, they can be infected for a longer period of time and mutations within the virus within those individuals um, can accumulate uh, to a greater extent 
purely because they're infected, not just not for a week, but potentially for a month or more. And so that time gives the virus to, to pick up more mutations. So we don't know where Omicron came from. And I think, you know, it's something I should have said with, the, with your first question, you know, it was first identified, but we don't know where the virus actually originated from. And we don't know what, cir- what the circumstances were. It, it might have originated in a population with low vaccine uptake, but then also potentially high natural infection, um, or it could have uh, arisen in somebody who is immunocompromised and was infected for a long time. I want to turn to you now, Dimitri. Could you start off by telling us how big the divide is between developed and developing nations when it comes to COVID vaccines? Yeah, sure. When we particularly talk about the vaccines, there is a major inequity worldwide in in global access to COVID-19 vaccines. That has been noted before already. It's a situation that already lasts for, for, for a year in reality. And the numbers are quite stark in that regard. Uh, if you look at Europe, for example, Europe has many European countries, including Ireland, have passed uh, over 70% vaccination coverage. That means fully vaccinated. But when we look at the situation in Africa, the average is around 6% of the population being vaccinated. Now, you need over 70% to be able to control a pandemic. That means with 6%, you're far off. In reality, you know, when it comes to very concrete cases, uh, Healthcare workers in Africa, only one in four apparently is still uh, fully vaccinated, which is very low, of course. These are people that are on the front line fighting the disease or, or trying to stem the pandemic or dealing with, with people that are ill. So they're very vulnerable to get infected. And if only one in four is being vaccinated, that makes them very vulnerable and the healthcare system very vulnerable as well. If you look, for example, at the booster shots, because now, as I said, over 70% of the population may have had its both shots. but as we know, more and more countries are considering to give a third booster shot to, to the population. And at the moment, the number of booster shots provided in high-income countries, that's the richest countries in the world, is double the amount of vaccine doses that have been administered in lowest income countries. That's that's the poorest countries in the world. That's about 120 million booster shots have been provided already uh, worldwide, particularly in rich countries, compared to 60 million doses only being administered in uh, in in lower income countries. Even if these countries had good access to vaccines, and it's important to say we're not just talking about countries in Africa, but countries all over the world like Haiti and Papua New Guinea who have very low vaccine rates. If the access to vaccines was improved, would the health services in those areas face further obstacles in rolling them out? I think on the one hand, you have the lack of supply to these countries, and then there are obviously additional logistical constraints in storing these vaccines, rolling them out, uh, transporting them, getting into the healthcare uh, centers to, to vaccinate populations, etc. So those are additional barriers. But the first barrier, of course, is just to get the vaccines to these countries for them to be able to use them. And that's a major challenge. But the inequity does not just stop with vaccines, and it's often a bit overlooked. It's also the case for tests and for treatments. Lower and middle income countries have, uh, to a large extent, you know, a lack of, of COVID-19 tests. There was a research done by the World Health Organization where they tested samples of populations in Africa, where it turned out that only one in seven people that have contracted or or were positive for COVID-19 in their sample, only one of seven had been tested before and knew that they were COVID-19 positive. So that means that actually we miss six out of seven people with COVID-19 in Africa. Is that why case numbers are lower than we might expect in some African countries, because of the lack of testing capacity? It, it really puts into perspective or it puts into 
question a bit what we know about the caseload in Africa and in lower and middle income countries more generally, because the problem is, I mean, we know now these numbers because of this sample study in, in Africa, but it actually extends to other lower and middle income countries on other, on other continents as well. And there are really questions about the number of COVID-19 deaths worldwide. The official number is around 5 million people now, over 5 million people. The unofficial number is over 50 million people, but the unofficial one is uh, perhaps over 50 million. Uh, if you look at the excess death rate worldwide, uh, some people estimate that the number of deaths of COVID-19 may be actually triple the amount of the official uh, people that died from the pandemic so far. So it could be that we really miss a lot of COVID-19 cases and a, a lot of uh, deaths related to COVID-19 worldwide. And you need these tests. You need these tests to be able to, to control the pandemic, particularly if you lack the vaccines. But even if you have the vaccines now in Europe, I think we really see the reality that these vaccines are crucial, but they're in themselves, they're not enough to stem the pandemic at this stage. So we really, really need the other tools. We need the tests, we need the treatments, and we need the vaccines. We need all the tools to be able to get it under control. The tests are also crucial for treatments because a lot of these treatments, you need to take them a few days after having tested positive and before you fell really ill. So there, the link between the tests and the treatments is crucial as well. So you need all tools. And just to go back to vaccines and issues around them being distributed equally, is it fair to say that some countries are hoarding vaccines? For sure, there is um, a tendency by rich countries worldwide to order way more doses than they actually need including the European Union, which has ordered about 4.5 billion vaccines for a population of 450 million people. That's 10 doses a person that have been ordered by the European Union. Now, in reality, a lot of the vaccines, because they come in gradually, a lot of these vaccines have been used to vaccinate the population, as I explained before, to get a high vaccination rate. But equally so, a lot of vaccines have expired actually in high income countries and are to expire in high income countries at this stage. Um, there's uh, an estimate that about 1 billion vaccines will expire in high-income countries or in richer countries worldwide by the end of this year and over 4 billion by the end of next year if they're not redistributed and used correctly. So there's definitely um, an element there that vaccines are used to a large extent, but equally so to some extent they're being kept in high-income countries and not being used and expire. Is this a case of richer countries simply being able to order vaccines quicker than other nations? Yes, that's definitely the case. So what happened at the beginning of the pandemic was initially a good idea. There was an idea to say we're going to centralize all production, purchases of COVID-19 vaccines in one global system, which is COVAX. So all the countries together have to submit their purchases to COVAX. They will purchase vaccines for the entire world, both rich countries and poor countries, um, and negotiate with the pharmaceutical sector for those purchases and, and negotiate fair prices where there would be lower prices for lower uh, for poorer countries and, and a bit higher prices for richer countries, so to say. And, and based on that, there will be an allocation according to needs. So all countries would start with vaccinating healthcare workers, then vulnerable populations, that means older people, people with underlying conditions, etc and then the rest of the population. So they would start with 20% of the population in every country would need to be vaccinated before we go, for example, to the 70% that we see in Europe right now. That was the plan in the first, first months of the pandemic, the first half year of the pandemic. Um, very soon after that, the United States, European Union, Canada, Australia, the UK, etc., 
immediately started to purchase doses outside the COVAX system. They directly negotiated with the pharmaceutical companies uh, where they paid higher prices, offered higher prices than COVAX uh, was willing to pay or was able to pay. They also had speed because uh, they could directly purchase with these, with these pharmaceutical companies and they didn't have to rely on the COVAX system where, as I said, it's, it's a more it's a bigger system. It's all the countries together, so it takes a lot more time, paperwork, administration. They need to get the funding to be able to start negotiating. So they were delayed. Um, and in that sense, um, richer countries basically took, took COVAX in speed and sidelined COVAX. So it's a system that was created by high-income countries and also pledged money to COVAX for, for COVAX to be able to purchase doses for lower and middle-income countries, which is good, which was a good use. But by sidelining it, at the same time, they actually... Um, Block the ability of COVAX to have indeed an equitable system of uh, allocating and distributing doses worldwide. And the reality is what we see today, as I said, with a difference between 6% in some African countries and over 70% in other countries. So programs like COVAX, they're not working basically? Well, they're working to a limited extent. And I think it's actually interesting to see where the doses are coming from right now in COVAX, because now doses are starting to pick up, but in a limited amount. So the idea was to have 2.1 billion doses by the end of this year being distributed by COVAX for those 20% population coverage, but there are only over 500 million doses right now. So about a quarter they have delivered and they only have one month to go. So they're far off track from, from their intended goal. And most of those 500 million doses that have been delivered in the last few weeks and months are actually doses that were donated by richer countries to COVAX. And that was not the plan, as I said. The plan was was COVAX was supposed to purchase those doses with the companies themselves, but they have hardly received any doses through that system. They have largely relied on the donations of, um, of, of high-income countries. And this is where we are quite concerned with that model, because it's now completely turned into a charity-based model, where the leftovers that are not used and sometimes are about to expire in richer countries are donated to COVAX, rather than having a self-sustaining system where lower and middle-income countries are able to purchase and actually also produce some of the tools that they need. Because clearly, we, as I explained, over across all tools from vaccines, tests, uh, and treatments, there's a lack of supply. There's a problem distribution, but there's also a lack of supply. We're not there yet in having sufficient supply to be able to cover the entire global, global population to the extent that we need to stem this pandemic. You mentioned um, it was a system created by kind of richer nations. Who oversees COVAX? Who's in charge of it? Gavi is administrating um, COVAX. It's a private foundation based in Switzerland. Together, then th that's, the, that's the administrator, the secretariat that actually, you know, negotiates with the pharmaceutical companies, allocates the doses, etc. In relation to that, there's also a board overseeing the work of, uh, of Gavi and COVAX. And that is largely uh, constituting of the European Union, the World Health Organization, CEPI, which is an international organization for uh, the development, research and development of uh, COVID-19 vaccines, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, etc. So there are a number of actors. The, there has been quite some critique when it comes to COVAX system that the influence of the donors, the richer countries that are pledging the money is too big and that the receiving, receiving countries, lower and middle-income countries that depend on the donations of COVAX, uh, that their influence is quite low and that they have a lack of information, that they don't know when they're going to get doses, that they don't know 
sufficiently about the contracts that are being signed, uh, the conditions attached to it, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and that they would like to get more involved in that regard. So this is where the TRIPS waiver comes into it, which it sounds complicated and is something a lot of people have been hearing about recently. What is it and how exactly could it help solve the problems you've outlined? Well, the TRIPS waiver is actually a key element into a different global pandemic response. As I explained, this, the COVAX system that uh, lower and middle income countries largely rely on is a very centralized system where they depend on what is being purchased by these international organizations. Uh, the international organization Gavi uh, and COVAX with the pharmaceutical companies and the conditions that are attached to, uh, to that and, and the supply that comes through COVAX. But it would be a lot, it would make a lot more sense that we build it, the pandemic response from the ground up. That means that we enable the ability or create the ability for countries and regions to take care of their own needs rather than have one global supply where everybody has to wait until it's their turn in the queue to get the doses, make sure that production and supply is diversified globally so that there are more companies that are producing similar tools, vaccines, tests, and treatments, and that you can buy from, from multiple companies at different um, different prices, different conditions, etc. Currently, we have very few companies that are actually supplying these, these vaccines. Eh? We have about five, if I remember well, um, that are supplying these, these, these vaccines, and there's a huge need, a huge demand. So the control of these companies, of these five companies, is also very extensive. They decide where to, where these doses go, at what price, who's in, in, the right, in which order, etc., that, that will receive the doses. In addition to that, with the booster doses now, and the concern about the new variant, the demand is still growing by richer countries to ask for more. That's what we see also. And we see that there's still demand for, for more doses to be purchased from those companies. And lower and middle income countries have their fear, and uh, rightly so, the fear that they're continuously being the last in line to receive the doses, which actually creates a risk of new variants. So there is a cycle that we're risking. I'm not saying there is a cycle, but there is a risk of a cycle where we're not able to control the pandemic in lower and middle income countries, and that just continuously re reignites the, a new cycle in the pandemic. What lower and middle income countries want, and that's where the troops labor comes in is, we want to have the ability to produce ourselves. We don't want to rely on these five big pharmaceutical companies for our supply. There are companies, we, we know that there are companies, even in Africa, there are seven countries that Dr. Sveta Boris has identified that has the potential to produce, produce mRNA vaccines. So there is production capacity that is not being used. And so what's the, where the TRIPS waiver comes in is a legal aspect. About 100 countries worldwide have asked at the World Trade Organization, we want to have the legal right to produce these tools regardless, regardless of intellectual property rights, so that we don't have to ask for the permission of these companies to be able to produce them. We want to have the ability to produce them because it's an exceptional situation, and these pharmaceutical companies should not be block us from doing so, because they could do so by going to court and take us to court if we want to produce ourselves. And that's where the trips will ever come in to say temporarily we suspend intellectual property rights. And it concerns actually three forms of intellectual property rights. The patents, which is really the legal allowance, if I can put that way, to produce something. Access to the data related to how the products work and how safe they are. And access to production information, the know-how on how to produce these vaccines. Those are the three elements that these countries want, the supporters of what is called the trips waiver. They say, we want to have the ability to produce 
regardless of patent protection and want to have access to the data on the safety and we want to have access to the know-how without having the risk that a company would after sue us in court um, and this is where there's a very strong uh, disagreement at the world trade organization between on the one hand these more than 100 countries that are asking this and on the other hand the european union and its member states including ireland as well the uk and switzerland that are blocking this proposal the world trade organization works by consensus everybody has to agree before a measure is being taken the ability to use a waiver in a, an exceptional situation like a pandemic is already existing in the trips agreement which is the agreement that is actually um, setting the standard for intellectual property rights worldwide there is an ability to say in an exceptional situation we can allow that countries have to not respect certain rules in the trips agreement and so these 100 countries say we want to use that waiver that tool that is already available for exceptional situation in this pandemic because it is a really exceptional situation right now and the european union the uk and switzerland say no we don't want this we block this and from there on this discussion has been dragging on for for over a year why are they blocking it exactly why is there opposition to this waiver the official version is that the european union doesn't believe that it is the right approach to deal with the pandemic that there will be sufficient supply of vaccines in the near future to to cover everybody that they think that companies should voluntarily engage with companies for example in africa or in asia to to produce their product there with, with local manufacturers, as well as that they're concerned that this request will undermine the intellectual property rights system. That's th Those are the official versions that are being set. As I said, the European Union makes the argument that there will be sufficient supply for everybody by mid next year so that we don't need this, this, this TRIPS waiver. But as I explained, we already see a dynamic. It was already happening with the Delta variant as well that there are new variants emerging, then there are booster shots um, that are being used. Now there's a new variant, there's new concern, new orders, etc. And as I said, the country, from the country perspective, there's a concern of will we ever be the one in line to receive our doses that we really need uh, to the amount that, that, that we need to, to, to stem the pandemic in, in, uh, in our country and protect our population. And then when it comes to the voluntary option that the European Union says we should ask Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca, etc., to voluntarily share um, their technology with producers worldwide. What we have seen so far is this, that this hardly happens. Only AstraZeneca has extensive deals with producers worldwide to produce the, the COVID-19 vaccines. But all the other ones are very, very secretive of their technology, and they don't want to share this with any kind of other additional producers uh, on other continents. Um, because they don't want them to, to get to know how to produce the vaccines themselves and potentially in the future find other ways to use that technology. A decision was due to be made about the TRIPS waiver at a meeting of the World Trade Organization this week. That meeting is no longer going ahead, but can you explain to us what that meeting was going to be about? Well, every couple of years, every two years actually, all ministers of trade worldwide meet in Geneva at the World Trade Organization to take major decisions on international trade policy so they set common standards for all countries worldwide and agree on a number of important issues that they that the decisions they need to take uh, policy policies they want to adopt etc this week there was such a ministerial conference planned at the world trade organization the last one was four years ago because there was one cancelled due to COVID 19 already so it has been delayed that that the trade ministers would would meet 
And one of the topics on the discussion this week was a pandemic response, such as the TRIPS waiver, what to do with it. As I said, there's a major disagreement between, on the hand, one hand, some European countries and basically all the rest of the world. Even the United States agrees to the need to adopt a TRIPS waiver in this pandemic, or they express their support for it at least. And so the ministers would meet and try to negotiate a final outcome in that regard. But the irony is, of course, that while this issue has been blocked in negotiations for over a year between diplomats and ambassadors meeting in Geneva to prepare for this meeting, and has been no progress at all, that the irony is, of course, that this new variant has actually forced the World Trade Organization to cancel the meeting. So they can't even meet to finally uh, untie the knots at the World Trade Organization and find an agreement among, among the trade ministers. Have we seen something like a TRIPS waiver before or, or something similar on other medicines? What exists already in the uh, TRIPS agreements is compulsory licensing. And it's an important tool. It's actually a pretty good tool um, if it works. And that's the, that's the difficulty. I will come to that. That allows a country to overrule patent protection. So it would, it would allow a country to basically see, to protect public health. I'm not going to respect the, the rights of a company to have a monopoly on this product. We have seen that for HIV 20 years ago during the HIV AIDS um, epidemic that was raging to Africa, that, that tool was used a number of times. We have seen it being used for hepatitis C treatments. Um, the last Malaysia was one of the last countries, I think it was in 2018, that used compulsory licensing to say, I just allow a generic producer in my country to produce the medicine and supply to my population. But the difficulty with the tool is, you can only use it for your own population and product by product. So you can overrule the patent and ask the producer to supply to your population, but not to a neighboring country. But when you look at the pandemic right now, where needs are huge and we have production capacity that is spread unequally in a sense of not every country is able to produce medicines and vaccines, etc., you need to have the ability to work together, to collaborate, to have companies produce that have the ability to produce, to be able to supply more than their own country, but also other countries in the region or on other continents. Plus, when it comes to vaccines, there's a lot of components involved. There's very few companies that are, would be able to produce vaccines from scratch to finish. They would have to, to need to buy supplies, ingredients, etc., and then assemble that vaccine and then export it to a final um, destination. But even those ingredients are intellectual property rights protected. So that would mean that within the, within the compulsory, compulsory licensing system, it's very hard for company for companies to collaborate because they cannot export and import easily to work together and then make the product together and then export it or use it in, in the own country. That's one limitation of compulsory licensing. The other one is the access to the data of the effectiveness and the safety uh, of the, the, the vaccines and the treatments, as well as the access to the know-how on how to produce these tools are not covered under compulsory licensing. So while you may be able to have the legal right to produce these tools, you would need still risk uh, that you would need to do clinical trials again, which is unethical. That means you would have to try to develop a vaccine. For example, in South Africa, actually, they're trying to do this right now. In South Africa, South Africa says we're going to try to um, re-engineer re the Moderna vaccine. 
We're going to try to make it ourselves based on existing publications, talking with scientists, etc. information that is out there, re-engineer the vaccine, but then we need to test it again on animals, on people, etc. And your risk of getting into a very immoral situation of doing, developing something and doing something and testing it on a population while all of this exists and to some extent is in the hands of the government already, but they can't share it with the producer that's actually trying to do this. And this is where the waiver is different from compulsory licensing because the TRIPS waiver would allow the government to share that information with that producer so they don't have to go through the, fu uh, the fuzzle of trying to re-engineer it and take these risks um, when it comes to clinical data, etc. Finally, Dimitri, does vaccine inequality put the world a little bit more at risk of new variants emerging in the future? Or can we say that for sure? We can't say now if this new variant would not have emerged with better equity worldwide or vaccination coverage. I mean, that's, that's a counterfactual statement. So I, I cannot say that it would not have happened. But the higher the population coverage and the, the less um, the virus circulates and the better the protection that people have against the, the disease, the more unlikely it is to, to mutate and, and develop a new riskful variant. So this is why also leaders in the European Union, Ursula von der Leyen and, and perhaps even the Irish uh, prime minister as well, uh, have all said no one is safe until everyone is safe. And we completely agree with that. We need a sufficient level of, of global population coverage to stem the pandemic, spread the, the spread of the disease, control it, etc., to prevent what we may risk. And it's not known if we do risk it at this stage, but that we would have at some point a variant that basically sidesteps the, the vaccine protection and that we can start all over again. Dimitri, thank you for explaining all of that to us. And thank you to Kim also for laying out at the start the facts so clearly on what we've still yet to learn about Omicron. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and thank you to our guests, Kim and Dimitri, for joining us. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and Aoife Barry and my co-host Michelle Hennessy. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can listen back to last week's episode of The Explainer, which looked at booster vaccines and the latest surge of COVID-19. If you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber. You can also leave a review and a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to help other people find us and to listen to our work. Thank you. Slán Thamil. <laughs>